I'm Father Gregory Pine, and I'm delighted to be joining you for this next installment of Off-Campus Conversations. And today, we have with us Professor Philip Munoz from the University of Notre Dame. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Munoz. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. So uh, some listeners of the Thomistic Institute will be familiar with you and your work insofar as the Thomistic Institute has par partnered with uh, Tocqueville in uh, past uh, NYU conferences or other ventures. Uh, but for those who don't know you, would you say a word of, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do, and how that's good? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's right. We have partnered. So I am a professor at the University of Notre Dame. I'm in the political science department. I also have an appointment in the law school. Um, uh, friends of the Thomistic Institute uh, might know me on account of my directorship of Notre Dame Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. Um, a part of that center is called the Tocqueville Program. And we've been partnering with the Thomistic Institute, at least uh, prior to COVID. We do a conference, a really a terrific conference every spring at, at uh, NYU, at the uh, Catholic Center there, at the Thomistic Institute directs. So hopefully we'll get that going again. I'm not sure. Um, uh, in fact, on my to-do list is to email Father Leg and ask him if we can pull off a conference in the spring of 2023. But uh, we've had Father Leg uh, to campus many times, um, and uh, we're, I'm delighted to be on the show, and I'm a, a big fan of the Thomistic Institute myself. And as I told you right before we uh, uh, start recording, I watch uh, Aquinas 101 with my 10-year-old son every morning. He's very happy that I'm, I'm here talking to you. <laughs> Your son is very precocious, um, and I will pray that it bears great metaphysically realistic fruit in his life. So <laughs> while all his contemporaries are spinning out theories, which may or may or not correspond to reality, he will be deeply engaged with what is. So your son, man, he's going he's gonna to crush well, it. <laughs> we limit his screen time, uh, but I told him he could watch as many Aquinas 101 videos as, as he wants. So It's incredible. His love, of, his love of technology is being used against him. Yeah. <laughs> That's like how my parents got me to go to Franciscan University of Steubenville. They said, you can go wherever you want to school, but if you want some help from us, you got one option. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's so I applied right. to one yeah. school and uh, things worked out. Um, yeah. Okay. So in addition to watching Aquinas 101 with uh, your son and co-sponsoring events with the Thomistic Institute, turns out you know Father Dominic Legg from way back when. That's right. Um, so uh, Father Dominic, uh, prior to Father Dominic, he was David Legg, my high school locker partner and my uh, CYO, eighth grade uh, boys basketball competitor. I went to St. Bernadette's Elementary School and he went to St. Philomena down, the, down those streets. So we go way back. Yes, um, we were uh, high school friends, very close high school friends and then college roommates. And then uh, ironically, this, uh, your listeners might find this of interest. He wrote his undergraduate thesis on James Madison and I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, yeah. Man, sweet, sweet historical irony. Okay, so um, <laughs> yeah, since yeah, his right. grade school's patron was St. Philomena, would you say that his basketball team slash he were lost causes who merited the prayers of the aforementioned patroness? Or, I mean, how would you say you compared on the basketball court to him? Better? Yeah. Infinitely better? Yeah. Inestimably better? Um. His strength uh, on the basketball court, you could tell he was a born preacher when he played <laughs> basketball. Maybe I'll put it that way. 
Man, savage. Okay, so this is now like the Tomisic Institute version of Easter eggs. We're just going to like plant just little gems in these here off-campus conversations so Father Dominic can find them at his leisure and then subsequently fire me. Um, so sounds like a win-win situation for everyone. I, I thought involved. the whole the whole show was just going to be about, you know, Father Leg and stories about him. I mean, I got, I got a lot of material. <laughs> All right, well, at the end of the show, we'll do a couple hot takes and you can... Uh, you can share one favorite Dom- Father Dominic Legg story, uh, so we'll we'll have that to look forward to. In the meantime, though, you wrote a book. Well, you've you've written many things, but recently you wrote a book called Religious Liberty and the American Founding. Could you give us a little thumbnail sketch of the argument that you advance or what you hope to prove? Yeah, sure. So uh, the book does three things. Um, the the first thing, actually, the the central chapters talk about the original meaning of the religion clauses. So these will be of particular interest to lawyers. Um, Many people, not everyone, but many people think the Constitution should be interpreted in light of its original meaning. That requires, to understand the original meaning, uh, requires a lot of historical work. And so this, it's a historical investigation, or the book offers a historical investigation of the original meaning of the First Amendment's two religion clauses. Uh, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Um, I start with the, that part, even though it's the middle of the book, because um, part of my argument and one of the more, I don't know, distinct or novel aspects of the book's argument is that I say um, there is actually no clear original meanings of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Um, I have a story on why that's the case, but um, uh, a good faith attempt to do originalism doesn't quite work. Um, now that, that poses a problem for constitutional interpretation. Uh, the way I address that problem is to say, well, let's look at what the founders thought about religious liberty. So it's originalist in a broader sense. Um, what was the original philosophy of the Constitution or the founders' political philosophy? Uh, and so the second thing the book does, and this is actually the first part of the book, is it explains the founders' natural rights account of religious liberty. Um, for all their differences, and the founders disagreed about some things, they all agreed that religious liberty was an inalienable natural right, or they used the term unalienable. Um, so I try to explain, what does it mean to, uh, to, for us to have a natural right of religious liberty? What does it mean for that right to be inalienable? And that leads me into the founders' social compact theory of government. Uh, I try to explain how natural rights are part of the natural law. So uh, the first thing the book does is uh, uh, constitutional interpretation. The second thing it does is uh, uh, political philosophy tries to understand the and explain the founders' political philosophy, and then the third thing it does is it applies that political philosophy to contemporary cases. So uh, the argument of the book is: if we took the founders' natural rights approach to religious liberty seriously, this is what we get in terms of constitutional jurisprudence. And I, I use real cases and try to explain the results uh, that would result. Um, and then uh, in the conclusion, I offer my own assessment. Um, you know, this is maybe the strengths of the approach. This, these are the weaknesses. And um, I, I try to leave it for the reader to decide for himself or herself uh, whether the founder's approach is a good approach uh, uh, in itself, you know, philosophically sound or, or prudentially sound to follow today. Okay. Um, so I've, yeah, just a handful of thoughts or a handful of questions by way of follow up. <clears throat> um, so maybe the first would be along the lines of like speculative and practical reason. The second would be along the lines of history and its place in this type of inquiry. And then the last would be along the lines of political philosophy, specifically concerning rights. Um, 
So, okay, I'm thinking the first, like speculative and practical reason, I'm thinking about how politics, you know, you teach in a political philosophy department, so you're not just doing imperiometrics, not that that is not a dignified study, but you're thinking about things. Um, and the study of politics is classically attendant upon the study of ethics, and yet we would hold that politics is also the art of the possible. Um, so it, it has a decidedly practical bent. Um, now, in the current conversation, there are a lot of people who are pushing more in kind of a speculative direction. And here I'm thinking about the, the integralism argument as to what constitutes the best regime, what constitutes the best relationship between church and state. And I think a lot of people who are unimpressed by that uh, or who are not on board for that, like I just had a conversation with Russell Hittinger um, along similar lines, uh, would say, no, 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 like we have to address the particular you know, concrete circumstances of the 21st century. What do you think is a good way in which to manage that back and forth? Yeah, that's good. That's a, uh, that's a great question and a big one. Um, you know, two thoughts. The first is, um, well, obviously, you know, prudence is a cardinal virtue. And so prudence is, you know, what is the right thing to do? Um, what's the right way to do it uh, in the here and now, you know, you have to act in the right way for the right reasons in the right time. Um, but I don't think you can know what the prudential course of action is if you don't also have a sense on, um, you know, what is what is the best regime or what is just, right? So they're not, um, I hope I'm not violating any uh, Thomistic philosophy here, but it seems that uh, uh, the speculative reason and practical reasons are not wholly divorced. Um, so what I tried to do in the book is say, um, what does justice require in terms of religious worship? Um, you know, is there injustice uh, an account of a right to religious liberty? And if there is, well, then that will have practical results, right? At least if we want to live in a just regime. Uh, so um, I, I suppose in a way the book is, uh, it doesn't start from the here and now. It doesn't start from, okay, what is the best thing we can do to protect religious believers? Um, or, you know, how do we win uh, this and this or that court battle that's looming in the future? Um, I, I start with a philosophical. What is the case for a right of religious liberty? Is there a right of religious liberty? Uh, if there is, what does that mean? If we are to respect that right, what, what would that look like? Um, after we do that, then I only ask, um, with this older approach, the founders' natural rights approach, would it be worthwhile to try to adopt? Could we adopt it? Would it be worthwhile to try to adopt it? Those are the more practical questions. And those are much harder, actually, to, to figure out you know, what really is the best course of action now. You know, I, can, I can go into reasons why. Um, let me touch on one other thing that was implicit in what I just said, but on the, on the integralism um, directly. Um, most integralists talk about you know, politics being ordered to the common good. I think that's a very good thing. We, our politics should be ordered to the common good. Um, but they presume that everything is part of the political common good. I mean, there's a prior question. What is part of the political common good and what is not? And I don't see, at least our contemporary integralists or the, the students influenced by the, them, um, it's as if they never think through that question. Are there some things that are parts, are there common goods outside the political common good? 
Are, you know, are there things, are there goods simply that are best pursued not through politics? I think those are very important and fundamental questions. Um, and I, I actually think my book wrestles with those questions. Uh, I think the integralists, today's integralists are too quick to assume that politics is everything. And I think that's a mistake. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to follow up on a comment you made about the nature of justice. Okay, so thinking here, when it comes to meditation upon the common good, a typical story that you'll hear is that formerly we conceived the common good as like a kind of divine or transcendent good, which is not just the aggregate of like the material goods of whatever polity concerned, but which actually names the orientation of the members to the whole. It's a kind of moral person. Um, and it is in being more broadly diffused, it is not diminished, but rather participated in more fully. Whereas subsequently we think about it in the kind of post-liberal dispensation that it's, it's just the aggregate of goods and it's just like a pizza and you got to cut it up and then you everybody got to take their piece and then you walk away with the aforementioned piece. Now, there have been, I don't know much of this landscape, but there have been scholars who have done work on a kind of evolving notion or evolving concept of justice or a virtue. I'm thinking here of Alistair McIntyre. I'm thinking of uh, which one, whose justice, which rationality, which I think is like late 80s. So he's, he's talking about like a Homeric sense and he's talking about an Augustinian Thomistic sense. And then he gets to the kind of enlightenment sense before coming to the, the liberal sense, I suppose. Um, and McIntyre is sometimes accused of being relativistic. Um, not for that specifically, but for other reasons, the way in which he grounds his, his practical reason. Um, <clears throat> might we worry about a similar claim when it comes to the American founding? Okay, so you have these men in this time and in this place conditioned by these circumstances, and they come up with this notion of justice, which is, uh, you know, an 18th century notion of justice, which is downstream of the Enlightenment. Um, okay, so that's the hand that we're dealt. Um, are there basic or fundamental questions that we need to be asking whether or not it's a good hand, like it's the hand that we want to play, or should we just be kind of more so involved in the, the practical consideration of, of playing this hand? It sounds like you're entertaining the, both of those questions at a certain level in the book, but how do you, how do you sort that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's very good. So uh, the founders them, themselves, of course, would not say they um, were defending or articulating an 18th century conception of justice, right? Uh, they thought they were just articulating justice. Mm. Uh, now they might be might have been wrong, and we, in hindsight, we might might simply say, "Well, you know, this was a actually a conception of justice that you know we categorize it as an 18th century conception, and it's just it's it's not it's inadequate for various reasons." Um, uh, but they were classical in the in the just in the sense of um, you know they were not historicist, and they don't you know that no justice is justice, right? To what degree it can realize, be realized uh, in different time periods well, might vary, but you know the the thing is the thing what it is. Um, so my task is to try to understand the founders' conception of justice, or we could say that a natural rights republic conception of justice, and is it accurate? Is it true? Is it just? Right? Do we really have a natural right to religious liberty? Um, now let me let me address in a way the issue, same issue in a different, slightly different way. Um, the, the integralists will say um, um, politics must take its bearings from the highest things, from the highest good, right? Um, you know, that the, we can't limit or we shouldn't limit or it's impoverished to limit 
the political order simply with, you know, comfortable self-preservation, you know, material, you know, peace and security and wealth. Not that peace and security and wealth are bad things, but if that's all we aim at, that's, you know, it's, it's too low. It's not dignified. Uh, it's insufficient. Uh, but how how ought politics take it, take into account the highest things? How ought political authorities take um, take account of spiritual authority? Right. I mean, one way political authorities can respect, acknowledge, recognize spiritual authority is by limiting themselves, because there are higher things than the political community. You know, we limit the authority of the political community. So to say that the political community is limited in its aims is not to say that there's nothing higher than comfortable self-preservation. It's saying, no, there's a different authority who has different responsibilities, more sovereign, higher responsibilities. So when I say that um, my integralist friends, they they assume, you know, they, they, they assume they're Aristotelian uh, and therefore, you know, the political community is the highest community. But Christianity makes that com- complicated, complicates that. There are two authorities, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's. And what is Caesar's? Uh, Caesar's doesn't necessarily have divine power, right? And so the founder's solution to this is to limit political authority in recognition of a higher and more sovereign authority. So to say that the political common good is limited, it doesn't mean that they're not higher goods. It just means there are different authorities and a different non-political common good that ought to, is responsible for those higher goods. I don't know, that was very abstract. I hope that was yeah, yeah. relatively oh, clear. Yeah, yeah. And, and so here, okay, so that's the framework. The, the question is, can that framework be rationally defended? And And my interest in the founders is because they think through these matters. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an American. I'm proud of my country. I'm patriotic. I, I want to know our own history. But really, my interest in the founders is philosophical. They are the first ones, I think, who um, both philosophically, but then practically, you know, actually politically, legislate a regime uh, of limited government that recognizes a higher sovereign authority, divine authority. That's why they're so interesting. And what are the arguments they made? And, and they argue from, uh, from justice. It is just that political authority be limited in recognition of the obligations that men have to the creator. Obligations that are governed by religious authorities, not political authorities. And so trying to think through all those arguments and if they're adequate. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. And that's, you know, that's really what the book is about. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating as you make um, these various uh, whatever explanations, expositions. I'm I'm thinking about my life. <laughs> he says quite narcissistically. Um, so I've lived in Switzerland for the past two years, and I've had occasion like to visit different Catholic communities of mostly you know, like young lay people in a handful of other countries in Europe. Um, so like some in Eastern Europe, uh, but mostly in Western Europe and mostly in small, hyper-secularized places in which the church just took a beating in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And truth be told, hasn't quite 
come out of that and might even still be in the midst of it. Um, and okay, so I'm going to try my best to characterize uh, something which is uncharacterizable at a certain level. Okay, so it's I, what I'm trying to say is that I have a greater appreciation for the American regime on account of the fact that I have seen the effects of, uh, like, the kind of uh, religious liberty which you describe and kind of vindicate in your book uh, by comparison to other regimes in which, um, yeah, that is not the case. Okay, so um, just some, like, kind of defining factors is that the, the church is often very rich. Uh, the church is well established in an institutional sense, but is often void of adherence, uh, at least in the kind of vibrant, um, mass going, volunteering, um, you know, kind of like church life animating way. <clears throat> and yeah, it's just like, it's, it's kind of violent. In fact, the rejection of it, whilst um, pushing back against any who would pretend to claim that their current non-theistic adherence could be bettered. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just super fascinating. So I, I don't know. It's like, um, I'm thinking about now, like Apple products, like 17 years ago, Apple convinced us that they were the underdog. And now they've got what, like 75% consumer saturation in the United States, but we still think about them as kind of like chic and cool. Um, in the United States, like religion has always had a kind of like underdog, like feel, it seems to me. And yet it's a very religious country. Um, but without the kind of establishment which you might see in the old world or on the continent. So I'm trying to make sense of my experience and I'm doing a terrible job of it at present. But th it, it seems like what you're advancing is that there's something there that's structural, which would actually conduce to the present liberty that we, ex we experience um, and to even the fervor. Would you go so far as to make that claim that like the, our current experience of religious life in America and maybe even its... <laughs> comparatively better state could be, you know, at root grounded in this type of regime? Yeah. So I think, um, look, one doesn't want to um, make definitive conclusions based on our experience because, you know, 20 years from now, we might say something different. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll have more experience, um, but we should pay attention to our experience. I mean, um, it, it's, you know, we think, well, um, shouldn't, if religion is true and religion is good, shouldn't government support religion? I mean, for political reasons, right? Um, uh, if people, religious citizens, I mean, social science, you know, they're, they're more generous, they're more law-abiding, they vote more. You know, all these, you know, secular empirical metrics of uh, good citizenship are encouraged by religious practice. So you could say simply for politically utilitarian reasons, it would be good for governing authorities to support religion. But but a different argument would be, no, religion is good. Like, it's true, right? The Catholic Church is true. Therefore, those who have authority, taxing authority, coercive authority, ought to direct individuals you know, towards the truth. And that seems to make sense. Um, but we, we have to take into account human experience. Um, maybe in some situations that work, but in lots of situations it doesn't work. It turns out to be bad for religion, right? And Tocqueville saw this very clearly. It's not something I write about in the book, but he he saw that the connections with the state actually tend to undermine the vigor and authority of religion. And then, so so we have to we have to try to understand our experience and reason from it, and, and you know, and see if we can make sense. So I think there are some very good reasons why that um, 
political uh, religious dependence on the state or aid from the state tends to be bad for religion and practice. Um, uh, yeah, I, I actually think that's true. Uh, we see it empirically. That's what you're describing, right? Um, uh, the church in Germany, which gets tax revenues and is very rich, but German Catholicism is a disaster. Is there a connection there? Well, I, yeah, I think you can make an argument. There is a connection there. I think the Tocqueville, again, this is not actually part of the book, but Tocqueville makes that connection um, very clearly. Let me give you a very concrete example. My kids come, uh, go to a, a startup classical Catholic school, brand new. It's only second year. Should that school get funds from the government? It, in Indiana, you can. I'm in the state of Indiana, and there's Indiana is pretty good for charter schools and vouchers and things like that, government vouchers. Um, it's very attractive to get state funding. But will, and you say, well, the school's great. If we had more funding from the government, the school will be even better. It can serve more kids. It can grow. That's all true. But will that dependence on the state in some ways end up corrupting the school? And it's not hard to see how that could happen. Right? It's hard to stay to your mission as a Catholic classical school when someone else is paying the bills. Uh, that's always a danger of state funding. The same thing has happened. You can see, the, understand the same rationale to churches. Right? Um, so I don't know if that makes sense of your experience, but I think there's a lot to it. And you know, Tocqueville is really the, the one who t talks about this most clearly. This, by the way, is an argument that that happens just to connect to the book. And I try to explain this in the book um, between James Madison and George Washington, right? George Washington was, um, would be a much more like a social conservative today. You know, he thought, you know, religion is good and has good political effects. Government should support religion. And, and Madison said, well, government may need a religious citizenry, but religion doesn't need government. You know, religion will survive on its own just fine if it's not corrupted by government. Uh, now, most people interpret Madison to be sort of anti-religious or skeptical of religion. I don't think that's the case, actually. I, I think in a way he saw that um, the dependence on government is really bad for religion. And um, it, it leads to a lack of vigor um, among those who lead religions. And when the leadership class of a religion lasts vigor, the religion withers. That is true, empirically and verifiably true. Um, do, do you think, so I'm thinking about recently I had a conversation where somebody was describing like the longest standing regimes, political regimes in the world. And I guess you have like 1688 with England and then maybe Iceland claims to be also dating to the 18th century, and then you have the United States, whatever it is, 1783. Um, do you think that this relationship between the state and its kind of broad provision for free exercise, um, do, do you think that that has something to do with the longevity of the American experiment? Uh, because when you take into account other factors, like the diversity of its people, by comparison to its incredible assimilative force of immigrants, um, like the large territory, uh, like with which includes so many different geographical regions which present their own difficulties and problems and then yeah just like the the various trials that the country has managed as it were not a ton of land wars on its own continent but 
various trials. Like, how do you account for it? Do you think, do you think that this is part of that story or part of that? Um, yeah. One of the contributing factors. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, you know, we had to start by saying, um, you know, the, uh, if we, we could date the United States from 1776, the declaration of independence or you know, 1787, the constitution, um, uh, but the whole thing almost fell apart, right? In in 1860 and 1860, 1865. So, um, for all the success the founders have, because of slavery and and race and the compromise with principle, true principles, uh, you know, the whole thing almost fell apart. Um, okay, to go back to religion, though, um, George Washington's um, writes a letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, it's a beautiful letter. And um, in that, and I start the book with it. And in that letter, Washington writes to the Jews, you know, um, uh, I'm paraphrasing here. Jews too can be American citizens, right? All, anyone can be an American citizen of any religion as long as you carry yourself as a good citizen. There's no religious test for citizenship. And, and that... Um, brings a lot of peace. Catholics and Protestants and Jews and, and Muslims, and now Mormons, and uh, we can be different religions and yet be fellow citizens. The stakes of politics are lowered in that sense. Um, well, that means you can have a large, diverse republic. right? And that, I think, leads um, not only to... Um, partly the wealth of America and the strength of America, but the peacefulness and harmony of America. Uh, we don't have to agree on how to worship on Sunday or on Saturday, or even if you have to worship at all, and we can still be fellow citizens. Um, that's part of the genius of the founders, I think. Now, whether that can sustain a... So it's a great... You'd say they make a great gamble as well. Um, look, re religion is essential to the to moral character, and moral character is essential to um, a republic, right? A, a republican people are have to be a self governing people. They have to be. They have to have have the virtues of moderation, charity, um, temperance. Can the people outside of the government? nurture their own virtues, right? In a way, the state depends on religion doing its job, right? R religion is going to be outside of the state, but the state needs the religion to do its job well on cultivating moral character. That's a huge gamble in a way. I mean, it really is the gamble. Can a people govern themselves? Um, a lot of the troubles we have today as a nation is because religion is falling apart, right? Our political troubles are because our our, our churches are uh, failing in so many ways. Um, so maybe the maybe it, the regime won't be successful in the long run. You know, it, it's we'll see. Right? Can we live? Can America be sex, successful in a post-Christian uh, or post-religious or the post-religious population? That's not clear. I think. Yeah, I, res I respect your patriotic humility because I typically comport myself in the opposite fashion while living on another continent. 
Um, I wear my leather jacket with its American flag interior, and I'm sure to show that to all those who have a mind to see at every opportunity. Um, so yours is probably better for the promotion of pre peace and general welfare. Um, okay, so <clears throat> in the time that we have left, how about two hot takes and then one Father Dominic story? So as to the first hot take, I'm thinking of, okay, so the, like kind of the threat that Marxism poses, because Marxism tends to be anti-religious, uh, by tends to be, I mean is, um, <clears throat> Marxism kind of failed as a political movement. I'm thinking of like Eugene Debs' many attempts to be elected president uh, to no avail. He's like Henry Clay, you know, run a billion times, never win. Um, but, uh, but it seems like it's sublimated into a kind of cultural and social movement, which has gotten some serious traction in recent years. And it seems like that might be either symptomatic of or causal of the undermining of religion in political life. What do you think about this this kind of grand narrative of like Marxism contra American integrity or American patriotism. Is there something to it? Do you see it in the present yeah. dispensation or what? Uh, these questions are great. I've done a lot of podcasts and the questions I'm getting from you are unlike any other questions. They're very good. Um, I'd have to think about this more and I'm not, I'm not sure I, that I have an answer to your question. My sense is that the attraction to Marxism, especially among young people, it's not like they read Marx and they're so con you know, convinced. Um, I don't think that's true at all. And they certainly, it's certainly, you know, they don't study 20th century history and they're like, oh, you know, it turned out so well in all these Marxist countries, right? Uh, if anything, it's shocking how young people don't know anything about history, recent history. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is um, America, American elites about 100 years ago abandoned the idea of of natural law and natural rights, right? That nature sets a standard for moral behavior, right? Um, now, why that happened, I'm not sure. Um, you can look at from uh, Woodrow Wilson to Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is talking about our natural rights all the time. Woodrow Wilson, you know, 50 years later is saying, you know, the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. That's, uh, that's not true. Uh, and I think we lost the sense of natural law. And if you don't have a sense of natural justice or natural law, uh, what determines right and wrong? And I think people turn to Marxism because they're drift, adrift. Um, I think we're going to see something parallel. Um, uh, I mean, much to my sadness, we're going to see the rise of all sorts of older forms of paganism, sort of new paganism because people are uh, losing their religion. I mean, people need religion. And if they lose their Christianity, they'll find something else, whether it's Marxism or um, some new forms of Marxism or older forms of paganism or new paganism, right? There's a spiritual hunger that has to be uh, filled and it will be filled in all sorts of perverse ways if it's not filled in traditional you know, Christian ways or tra traditional religious ways. Um, so I don't know if that directly addresses your question, but I think the the contemporary um, rise of Marxism, especially among the young, reflects a real spiritual hunger, right? A hunger for justice. A hunger, you know, usually justice is thought simply to mean equality. I think that's short sighted, but it, it is. There's a hunger for justice, um, and the traditional ways that we taught people about justice and natural law, traditional religion, traditional sexual morality. Um, have been lost and at great harm to to young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Let me just wait a second. Well, I should well connect done. this back. Connect this back to the book, which is um, you can't go back to something or recapture something you don't understand. So part of the aim of the book is to try to explain the idea of natural rights and to show how natural rights are actually part of the natural law. That um, it, the founders' understanding of natural rights does not reject traditional natural law. In fact, it's a part of traditional natural natural law. The founders' understanding of religious liberty does not reject religious truth. Actually, it's a recognition of religious truth. And I think uh, younger folks, um, uh, they reject the American regime because they don't actually understand it. Um, and I think if we had a better understanding, it doesn't mean the American regime is perfect. Uh, but before we reject the American regime, we should understand it. And if we did understand it, I don't think we would, young, especially young conservatives, would reject it so easily. I'm thinking of a line from Chesterton. I think it's from Orthodoxy where he's talking about his kind of conservative instinct. And I'm about to paraphrase. He says something to the effect of, if you come across a fence in the wood, you should discern first what it's keeping in or what it's keeping out before <laughs> yeah, you tear yeah. it down. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Very good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, one last hot take, and this is on the theme of apocalypticism. So we talked about the founding. Now let's talk about, as a further way to reflect upon the founding, you can think about the ending. Um, I think um, <clears throat> people don't think in world historical terms. They typ typically think presentist terms. So if you're going to write a story of your life, you'll spend like 17 pages on the first however many years and then a thousand yeah. on yesterday. <laughs> um, but um, when we do what for whatever reason, zoom out, or we are made to zoom out by world historical events, sometimes it's bracing. So if the American regime were to fail, my question is, I was joking, before we push record, I was going to ask you to predict the day and kind of, you know, exact Mayan form according to a calendar which you found in your basement. Um, but instead, what, what, what do you think would be a possible way in which that would happen? I think people think, okay, we have two neighbors, Canada and Mexico, and I don't, I don't see them attacking us anytime soon. Um, and then what's next? What are our other options? Military coup, financial collapse, a meteorite. What do you think that, how would that look in the present dispensation? Yeah, uh, it's funny. I used to ask my students this. Well, I still ask my students this. And the context I would ask them is um, Abraham Lincoln, when he was a young man, he gives a speech uh, on the perpetuation of our political institutions. I think he's 28 or 29. And he, he sketches a scenario on how, how America disintegrates, falls apart. Um, it's kind of interesting that a 28-year-old would be thinking about these things. And I used to ask my students, I still ask my students, you know, how's America going to end? And, you know, people would say, ah, oh, volcano or something, you know, meteorite. Um, but in the last few years, you know, people can sketch some real scenarios. It's not so hard. And I think the reason why is... Um, it's not clear um, that the American people are one people anymore. Um, St. Augustine, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, say, says a people love, uh, have uh, shared love things in common, right? Especially a shared sense of justice. And I don't know that the American people have a shared sense of justice anymore, um, especially among uh among the elites or, you know, elites have a different sense of justice in many ways than most of the American people. Uh, that strikes me that there's a real fissure there and that fissure can be exploited and who knows the mechanism or what will happen. I'll, I'll say one other thing to this. I, I just taught a class on Lincoln um, 
you know, some ways it seems like we're in the 1850s right now in our divisions. Everyone keeps on saying, you know, we've never been so divided except prior to the Civil War. Um, you know, we needed Lincoln, who was very controversial in a way to lead us through our divisions and the Civil War. Um, our political leadership has been especially bad, you know, for most of your lifetime. We have, I mean, and this is a bipartisan comment, you know, we've had uh, mediocre president after mediocre president after mediocre president after mediocre president. And you can't have such bad leadership for so long. Some may be worse than others. Um, but you would not call the last, you know, the presidents of the 21st century, especially prudent statesmen. Um, and um, you know, this, the, the current generation of leadership has got to, you know, leave the scene and a new generation of political leadership needs to assume its place. Uh, and, you know, we, we need uh, someone as prudent as Lincoln to guide the nation through its divisions, to de-escalate if possible. So, uh, but bad leadership, to really get to your question, if we have another, another bad president that will further divide the nation, uh, that could be very bad, you know. How, what lead? What's the spark that leads to the, you know, the fire? I don't know, but yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm thinking about it in terms of smaller, you know, intermediate institutions. But yeah, a kind of drift of mediocre leadership tends to either kind of like deaden the conscience of the citizenry or foment in them a kind of rebellion. It's like we need to do something you know, fill in the appropriately bombastic blank. Um, but yeah, no, that's... We, 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 you know, we as a nation waged a war and didn't win. And that has serious repercussions. When you don't win wars, that has serious repercussions for a country. And we didn't win. I mean, whether we lost or not is, you know, is a weird type of war. You know, most of the last 20 years we've been at war and we didn't win. And, and we're still dealing with that. Yeah. Yeah. Bracing thoughts all. Um, so for what it's worth, my thought is that an American president is going to marry a Habsburg and then uh, we'll be back in the Holy Roman Empire without even having realized it. So, uh, yeah, you heard it here first, folks. <clears throat> OK, for the last uh, question, I don't know if you have a favorite Father Dominic Leg story that is shareable for the Thomistic Institute podcast, but uh, now is the time. <laughs> well, I don't know that I do have one that's shareable. I have lots of stories that are not shareable. That's for sure. Those, you know, those are the I best. could. Uh, you know, it's funny the things that come to mind. Um, you know, his slogan: He ran for student, uh, no, for freshman class president, Kennedy High School in Seattle, Washington, in 1985. And um, I still remember he ended his speech by saying, uh, "You know, uh, and and candidate Leg is standing for you." <laughs> Which, which he didn't win. <laughs> no, no. You know, actually, my my favorite Dominic stories are. Um, uh, he, I, I suppose he maybe he knows this. He doesn't really know it. Um, uh, we had a very tight group of uh, friends in college, uh, and um, you know, when one of your best friends uh, has a serious, in his case, a reversion to the faith, and you see that, you know, I mean. There was a, a, young, a young, he won't like me saying this, there was a younger, uh, you know, the pre-Father Dominic leg, uh, 
I knew all the uh, bars of D.C. and in Northwest D.C. and liked to stay at them very late. And, um, you know, he, he was we had a lot of good times, as young people do. Uh, young people with no responsibilities and disposable income. Um, we were no different from everyone else. Um, to see someone, um, I'd say it's not to someone who embraces the faith, someone who the faith embraced him. You know, it, it was clear that he was not in control. And when you see someone say yes to God like that, uh, it's, it's life-changing, you know. Um, if people want to know how the Catholic faith, or really any faith, but the Catholic faith will, will grow in the 21st century, it's from, from young men and women saying yes to God. And the influence that has on their friends and their family, um, it's, un, it's unlike anything else, right? Um, and you see the fruits in, in his life and his work. Um, so, you know, uh, that's my favorite Father Dominic story. I mean, his, being his friend has been a blessing to me. Uh, you know, my, we started off by talking about um, uh, my son, my 10-year-old. He's, he's my oldest one. He's named, he's named Dominic. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, to have, I wish for everyone listening that they have friends as good of uh, a friend that I have in Father Dominic Legg. Well, that's that's quite the Easter egg for him to find. So it's very beautiful, very touching. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, um, yeah. I was hoping that you know maybe you're going to tell a story about a time where he only wore like you know one sock instead of two at a prom or something like that. But alas and alack, you tell something with a very profound spiritual and religious significance. <laughs> it's like an well, embarrassing yeah, I, story, except the I, opposite. I, I, <laughs> I, I do have several photos of him in a toga, but uh, you'll, have to, you'll, you'll have to Incredible. you'll have to do a different podcast to get those stories. Exactly. Yep. And we won't we won't consult the editor of the Thomistic Institute podcast, <laughs> lest that doesn't make the censor. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much for having taken the time. Thanks for writing the book. Again, it's for those listening. It's Religious Liberty and the American Founding. Would you just say a word maybe where folks can find the book and then where folks can find you and your work and the programs at uh, Notre Dame that you're involved in? Yes, well, you can find out what we're doing at the center at constudies.nd.edu. Uh, that's our center website. Uh, so just or just Google Constitutional Studies and Notre Dame. Uh, all sorts of interesting speakers, including uh, there's some great lectures actually of uh, Father Dominic Legg, who's uh, lectured for us before. You know, the book. I can't really, in good conscience, advise anyone to buy it at Amazon, but you could buy it at Amazon. <laughs> and hopefully you can request it from a local bookseller as well. It's University of Chicago Press. So it's not going to, I don't know if it's in Barnes and Noble and it's bookstores like that, but you can find it online pretty easily. Or if anyone wants a signed copy, just uh, email me at uh, vmunoz at nd.edu and uh, uh, we'll figure out how to get you a signed copy. Wonderful. All right. Well, again, thanks so much. And then turning to you, the listener, uh, thanks so much for having tuned in. Uh, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to future conversations. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast. Mm -hmm.